Okay. Uh, well, today we are uh, in the middle of Romans chapter 6. Uh, last week... Boy, it is cool in here, isn't it? <laughs> You'll have to excuse the uh, temperature issues. They're having having mechanical problems today. Uh, Romans chapter 6, the last week we, we were looking at verses 5 through 11. Let me move away from that vent a little bit here. Uh, Romans chapter 6, 5 through 11. And today I want to pick it up with verse 12. And uh, originally the plan was to get down through verse 19. We're a little short on time today, so I don't know how far we'll go. But but next week I had only planned for the last four verses of the chapter, so we've got a little bit of give. If we uh, if we don't get everything done today that we need to, we should have time uh, next week to get that done. Um, but uh, let's just read. Uh, let's begin in verse one and read down through verse nineteen, just so we remind ourselves of the context and remind ourselves of some of the things we talked about. And then we can review a little bit and go on from there. So he actually begins in chapter 6, verse 1, which is, uh, we go back a couple weeks when we did that passage. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death 
or obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Okay? Well, look down there, uh, particularly in verses 5 through 11. Those are the, that's the passage we talked about last week. What are some of the things you remember that we considered last week as we looked at those verses? Okay, okay. All right, so he died to sin, he says, once for all. And the idea there is he only had to do it once. Okay, and uh, so then after he died, what happened? Okay, so, so Paul's making this point that Christ died for sin once for all. This is a one-time deal that he did. He died to sin but now he lives to God. Why is that significant in the context of what Paul is discussing? What's chapter 6 all about? Okay, our daily experience and particularly in relationship to what? Pardon? Newness of life and okay, and 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 no longer slaves to sin. Yeah, so it's this issue of what is the believer's relationship to sin, okay? And what the point that Paul is trying to make in Romans six is that now that we're saved, now that we're believers, we are dead to sin. That's what he's talking about in verses. Uh, verses 1 through 11. He's talking about this issue of being dead to sin and being alive to God. Okay? And so we talked quite a bit about this idea that, well, Christ died and we were identified with Christ when we came to Christ. Uh, just like in, the, in baptism, it pictures us going under the water. It pictures us dying with Christ and then raising again to, to walk in newness of life. So just as uh, so just as we see with Christ, Him dying to sin, the point is that as believers, when we, when we trusted Christ, we died to sin. And that's Paul's point. And, and what Paul is arguing is, he's refuting this suggestion that, that we should just, you know, now that we're believers we, you know, and everything's taken care of, we can just go on and sin whatever because it doesn't matter. And in fact, the question left over from chapter 5 was, well, if you sin more, there's more grace available, so why not just go sin more so you can get more grace, right? Okay? And so what Paul is trying to explain to us is how ludicrous that is, 
because we have died to sin. Now the question is, and this is the question we wrestled with last week, why do we as believers oftentimes have such little success in experiencing this concept of being dead to sin? And nobody answers the question because everybody in this class has such success in that. <laughs> what, why is it that when we talk about being dead to sin, you know, and I think, I really think many times the reason that many believers don't really think much about Romans 6 is because they just don't think it's real. They don't really believe that they've died to sin or at least they haven't been able to figure out how to experience on a daily basis being dead to sin. Sin seems pretty alive to them, okay? And so, so we really don't spend a lot of time thinking about Romans 6. Why is it that we as believers oftentimes really don't experience this thing about being dead to sin like we suspect maybe we should or could? Okay, that's the problem. The problem is we divorce it from the other half of the reality. There are two things that went on when we were converted. We died to sin and then we were raised to walk in a newness of life. So his conclusion there in that section in verse 11 is what? Okay, consider yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God through Christ Jesus. So, so in my daily walk, if I really want to experience being dead to sin, I have to do more than just think about, you know, when temptation comes down the road at me, it's barreling at me like a Mack truck. I need, you know, I'm standing there in the middle of the road. You know, I have to do more than just think, okay, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin. That isn't going to cut it, right? I'm going to get run over, right? What I also have to contemplate, and verse 11 makes this clear, is that I'm alive to God. Which means that in my daily life, to to experience the reality of death to sin... I have to be in my daily existence, in my daily life, I have to be consciously presenting myself to God or considering myself alive to God. So, so I have to be, and we're going to develop this thing more as we go into this next part of the chapter, I have to be contemplating in my life, how can I live my life for God today? So as I do the and this is the thing we talked about last week, as I do the various things that I do during the course of the day, like drag myself out of bed and get in there to the bathroom so I can brush my teeth, or, you know, and and then the daily tasks of going to work and relating to family and 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 uh, and all the various things we do in our daily life, to the extent that we are doing them for the Lord and doing them to God, to that extent, we're going to find triumph and victory in this area of being dead to sin. But if I'm not living my life for God, if I'm just living my life for me, 
then I, then this whole thing about being dead to sin is not going to work for me. Okay? Well, so so that's what Paul has been talking about up through verse 11. Now, in verses 12... In verses 12 through 14, he kind of makes a transition. He's still developing the same theme, but he's going to approach it from a different angle. And so he makes a transition in verses 12 through 14. And then picking up in 15, he, he, he uh, as I say, he, he approaches this whole issue of our relationship to sin from a different angle. In the first part of the chapter... He was approaching it from the angle of the perspective of being dead to sin and alive to God. In the second part of the chapter, he's going to be approaching this issue of the believer's relationship to sin from the perspective of the question of slavery. Okay? So he brings up this issue of slavery and he talks about slavery and being slave to sin or slave to God, as you see, as we already read it. And that uh, occupies the entire rest of the chapter. We won't get all of that done today, uh, but we'll pick it up. So in verse 12, then, he uh, he's just picking up. He's going on from where he was and he's going to tr- make a transition here. But he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. He's saying the therefore comes right after what he has just said about considering yourselves as dead to sin but alive to God. Okay. And since we know that we have died with Christ and we've raised with him to walk in newness of life and, and, uh, and, we, and we know that that's what God has called us to, to be dead to sin but alive to him, because of that, he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now, when he's talking there about our mortal bodies, uh, it seems that the idea that he's, that he's uh, trying to get across there, is the, the focus isn't so much just on the physical aspects of our body, although that's there, but the idea is the association of this dwelling that we are in with mortality. In other words, when you got saved... As Paul says in another place, you became a new creation. Now, did you notice that? When you got saved, you got better looking, right? right? You got more handsome, you got more beautiful, you know. You got your hair back, you know, probably for most of us hadn't lost it yet when we got saved. But, you know, we got, is that right? Is that what happened when we got saved? Pardon? Okay, you got a new heart. But the body pretty much was the same old decrepit body you had before, right? Okay? Okay? That's, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the reality that although we are believers, we are still in this old physical body, this body of mortality that still carries with it all the sufferings and the weaknesses uh, uh, and the inadequacies that it had before. Okay? It's still a body that, that functions as a fallen instrument, right? As a fallen tool or a fallen thing, okay? It's been impacted by the fall. So even though inside I've been converted, I've been transformed, I've been made a new creature in Christ, I still carry this mortal body around. And because I do, this mortal body, it still likes to, I've noticed, eat and sleep. And it doesn't like it when I work it too hard. Yeah? Okay? So it's got all these things that just mortality, you know, gives us. Okay? 
And so what that means is that because it still has has all these weaknesses and inadequacies of this physical being that still carries with it all the all the marks of the fall because of that it is susceptible to the appeal of sin so it still wants to eat which is okay but it's not okay that it also wants to be a glutton right And it still wants to sleep, and that's okay, but it's not okay that it wants to be lazy, right? Okay, so what Paul says is he says, now that that this is true, we've established this, that when, when you were saved, you died to sin and you're now alive to God, and that's the way you need to think. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So you've got this mortal body, it's still susceptible to temptation is still susceptible to sin. And your responsibility as a believer is to not let sin reign in that mortal body. Now, there's two things that are implied in what Paul says there. One is that sin could reign in your mortal body even though you're a Christian. Okay? Even though you're a Christian, it's possible for sin to be reigning in your mortal body. The other thing that's implied is it's also possible for you to choose not to let that happen. Right? Both things are implied. It can happen, but you're responsible to see that it doesn't happen. And that's actually the first of three imperatives that Paul gives us here. Three commands that Paul gives us in these first verses, first verses that we're looking at. And the first command is, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And then in the next verse, he goes on and he elaborates on that. What he means by that, he says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So, we have these bodies... And they have these, what he calls members. Now, when he's talking about members here, uh, it, it's pretty clear he, he means, among other things, just our, the physical aspects of our bodies. Our arms, our legs, our hands, our feet, our tongues, our eyes, our ears. Okay, those members. Also probably means your capabilities and your capacities as a human being. Okay, so your intellect and your gifts and the things that, that are just you, okay? That are associated with the person that you are. All the various parts of you, he says, do not present them to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And, and, and I like the way he puts it there because it's, 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 it's really illustrative of what happens. Is that I'm going through life and... Uh, I'm there at home or you're at home or whatever and you're relating to the family. And the adversary, what Satan wants to do is he wants to destroy your life, right? And he wants to destroy your family, right? That's what he wants to do. So he's got plans to bring destruction into your life and your family. And Paul's saying to you, do not use the members of your body 
your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your intellect, your gifts, to be instruments in Satan's hands to bring destruction in your family or destruction in your relationships or destruction in the environment at work and in the lives of people at work or in your leisure and in your association with people at leisure. Do not give over the members of your body. Don't use your hands. Don't use your feet. Don't use your eyes. Don't use your ears. Don't use your tongue. Don't use your intellect. Don't use your gifts as an instrument that will bring destruction in the lives of others or in your own life. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. I... You know, I don't know how many times in my life, and it probably needs to happen a lot more than it has happened, but I don't know how many times in my life when I have contemplated speaking a word. In fact, it just happened to me yesterday. I thought about something I could say in a certain environment. And, and I don't know that what I thought about saying was all that wrong, but I thought about the effect it would have on certain other people. I thought about the discouragement or the destruction it might bring in another life. And I went, I don't think I should say that. You know, maybe in some context it'd be okay to say, but in that context it wouldn't be good because it would hurt somebody. So at least in, at least at one time successfully in my life yesterday or the day before, whenever that was, at least once I did not present a member of my body, my lips, my tongue, as an instrument of unrighteousness. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. He's talking about stopping and thinking before we use our facilities that God gave us, stopping and thinking about, am I, is that being used as a tool, and actually the word could be translated there, weapon of unrighteousness. Paul says, don't do that. That's the second imperative. So the first imperative is don't, the, uh, uh, don't let sin reign. The second imperative is don't present your body as instruments of unrighteousness. And what's the third imperative? Okay. But offer yourselves, your, yourselves first to God as those alive from the dead. And so he's just bringing us back to the things he's talked about in the, in the chapter about. Okay, we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Okay. So we're not just... We're not just supposed to be dead to sin, but we're supposed to be alive to God. So how does that work itself out in our lives? This is how it works itself out. Instead of presenting ourselves to sin and the members of our body, excuse me, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, first we present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And we present the members of our body, the same idea as before, the members of our body, to righteousness as instruments of righteousness so that as I live my life, the way I can experience this victorious Christian living, if you want to call it that, in my life, the way we do this is we, is we, we spend a lot of time in our lives saying, God, here's my life. I'm giving it to you as one who's alive from the dead. Christ rose from the dead so I could live for you today. When I crawl out of bed, maybe one of the first things I should think about, I'm afraid it's not often the first thing I think about when I crawl out of bed. The first thing I think about is how I like to crawl back in. But maybe one of the first things I should think about when I crawl out of bed is, 
God, through His Son, has given me life. Not just physical life, but life to Him. And so, God, today, here's my life. I'm going to give you my life. Because you've given life to me. And then as I go through the day making a conscious decision to use these hands and use these feet and use these eyes and these ears and his mouth and my intellect and my gifts and everything that I've got to use it all and and hand it over to God as an instrument for righteousness. Because while Satan is trying to do things to destroy me and to destroy my family and to destroy those around me that I work around and etc., 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 while Satan is trying to destroy them, what God is about doing is He's about doing a work of righteousness. He's about doing some really cool things in my family and among my friends and among my acquaintances and the people who hire me and, and that sort of thing. He's about doing some really cool things. And I can be a co-worker with God if I will present these parts of my body to Him to use as an instrument in affecting His righteous work that He's doing. Yeah, Rick, I think you're, you're on with just starting in the morning. You get up in the morning and you say, God, you I think many times you get Satan play and you get up in the morning and you have to fear and you're saying, Lord, don't help me sin today. Yeah, yeah. You say, don't you keep away from temptation. When you go to the day, instead of looking to God, we're looking for all the temptations to get what? We're going to find Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And so if we get up in the morning, instead of going to God, we're going to have the temptation that God, what's going to do for you? Yeah. I think they have more strength. Yeah. Because they're relying on the strength in God than the fear of failing them. Yeah, that's a good point. Great point. Well, so that's our third imperative. And then having given us those third imperatives, and he really does use what's called the imperative mood in the Greek. He uses the imperative mood in those three commands. Imperative just simply means a command. And in the Greek, it's very clear that those are commands. They're in that imperative mood. But when he gets to the next verse, when he gets to verse 14, he switches out of the imperative mood and into what's called the indicative mood. Meaning this is just the way it is, folks. And what he says in verse 14 is for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So in other words, he's given us these three commands and now he gives us a promise. He kind of states the way it is. And this is the reality, folks. That if you live that way, if you do not present your members to unrighteousness as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather you present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. If you do that, he says, I have this promise for you. Sin will not be a master over you. Which is, in other words, the promise that fulfills the first imperative. The first imperative was do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now he says, listen, if you, if you live this way that I've just been talking about, I can guarantee you, sin is not going to be a master over you. And then he gives us a reason. Why do we know, how do we know that sin will not be a master over us? What's he tell us? Okay, because we are not under the law, but we are under grace. Okay, 
What does he mean by that? Well, we have to remember, you know, Paul just he kind of talks about law all the way through Romans, at least through these first, you know, seven or eight chapters. He just the, the subject of law just comes up and it comes up again and again and again and again. Okay, and he has just talked about the law at the end of chapter five. Remember, and what he told us about the law at the end of chapter five. Well, he says in verse 20, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there's this tension between law and grace that we saw there at the end of chapter 5. And the idea was that we all have this sin nature in us, but for a lot of us, it wasn't really conspicuous until the law came. And then when God gave the law, that made it clear to us how sinful we were in two ways. First, it revealed to us how we, how we were acting. It revealed to us that sin nature because it set this righteous standard here. But it did something else. What else did it do? Pardon? Okay. It, it revealed the guilt. And that's kind of the first part. Reveal the guilt. What's the second thing it did? Okay. It also incites sin. And God knew that would happen. He knew that when He gave the law, that not only would it show us our guilt, it would reveal already where we're at, but it would actually incite that sin nature and that would serve to show us even more how sinful we were. So the law, He said there in chapter 5, actually increased sin. It's not because the law is bad, and we'll talk about that in Romans 7. The law isn't bad, it's good, but, but this good thing that God gave, because we were so sinful, caused us to sin more. But now we find out that we're no longer under the law. I'm no longer under the law. And so what that means is, that I'm no longer in this situation where sin is being incited or stirred up in me because I am no longer under the curse and rule of the law. I've been delivered from that. I, don't have, I no longer have a relationship with the law. The law is no longer my master. And I am no longer under the curse of the law. The law came, it revealed my guilt, it incited my sin, and so that just made me more guilty under the law. And so, under the law, I had to suffer. I had to be punished. But then grace came. Then I came to Christ. And when I encountered Christ, I, came no, I was no longer under the rule of law, but I'm under the dominion of grace. I'm in a new age. I'm under a new to use a theological term, a new dispensation, a new administration. I was in, previously I was being administered by the law and it was riling up my sin and making me more sinful and, and condemning me for my sin and that was what was administering and that was what was ruling and controlling my life. But now I'm no longer there. I've been delivered from that and now I am under the dominion of grace. And so I've been set free from that curse and effect of the law in my life. And so sin no longer has dominion over me. So I know, as he says in verse 14, 
that sin will no longer be my master because I've been set free from the law and I am now under grace. Now, it's important we remember some things about grace. Three things grace does and one thing grace never does. One of the things grace does is it forgives our sins, right? <laughs> Provides us with forgiveness. Okay? We all know that. And we appreciate that. And what we're learning in this passage, and we learn in other places too, is that grace also provides us with the power not to sin. So God's grace working in our life makes it possible for us to say no to sin. Grace also empowers us and gives us the power to live righteously, to do righteousness. Okay? So these are three things we know. There may be some other things, but these are three primary things we know about grace. That through grace we receive forgiveness, through grace we receive power not to sin, and through grace we receive the power to live righteously. Okay? That's what it means to live under the dominion of grace. But there's something grace does not do. Grace does not condone or ignore or shrug its shoulders or wink at sin. You see, in those first three things that we mentioned about grace, the one thing we see is that grace is at war with sin. It does not get along with sin. Grace is hostile to sin. It forgives sin. It gives power not, not to sin. It gives the power to live righteously. Grace wants nothing to do with sin. Right? But for some people, they only think about the first part. That grace forgives sin. And they forget that as Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out, it's not cheap grace. It's costly. Grace costs God His Son. And they forget that, and so they say, well, since I'm not under the law, but I'm under grace, might as well sin. That's the question that comes up in 15. In verse 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Now, that's very similar to the question he asked in verse 1, right? The question he asked in verse 1 coming out of chapter 5 was, well, if the law came so that sin would increase and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, well, why not sin more so that grace might increase? That was the question in verse 1, which as we saw, he emphatically uh, refuted in the following verses. Okay? Now comes kind of the second part of the question, which is, well, since I'm not under the law, but I'm under grace... Why not sin? What difference does it make? Grace has got me covered, right? Now, what's interesting to me here is that Paul does here in answering this question something similar to what he did earlier in the chapter in answering the first question in verse 1. Because you remember that in chapter 6, verse 1, when the question was raised, and then as he begins to answer it in verse 2, he doesn't answer it the way we might expect him to answer it, but he answers it by showing how ludicrous it is to think that way. Okay? 
So he could have gone back and said, well, listen, you distorted what I said in chapter 5. That's not what I said about grace. But he didn't even bother with that. He just said, listen, you're dead to sin. You're alive to God. Why are you thinking these terms? This is stupid. Yeah, let's put it in the vernacular, okay? Well, he does the very same thing here now in verse 15 and the verses that follow. Because in verse 15, the question is asked, well, since I'm not under law but under grace, why don't I just go ahead and sin? And he answers it the same way. He says, may it never be, there in verse 16, right? May it never be. And then he launches into his explanation of why you shouldn't think this way. And it's kind of the same argument, or, or he approaches it kind of the same way as he did in the first part of the chapter, by showing just the logical absurdity of all this. Remember, in the early part of the chapter, we pointed out that when it came to the Christian sinning, it was not a practical impossibility. Christians can sin. But it's a logical absurdity. It just doesn't make sense. And he does the same thing here now with the second question. It's not that sin is a practical impossibility. It's very clear from this verse. He's very concerned about Christians choosing to sin. And he does not want them to do it. So it's not a practical impossibility for the believer to sin. It's just a logical absurdity. It's just stupid. Okay? It's just stupid. And so now he launches into... Uh, the next of his arg- the rest of his argument here. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? So just like back in verse 1, or in, excuse me, after verse 1, in verses 2 and following, he refutes the suggestion of the question by appealing to something that he knew the Romans knew. They're familiar with this whole idea of having died with Christ and been raised with him. They knew that from their baptism. Okay? And so he appeals to what he knows they know. Well, he does exactly the same thing here. He appeals to what they know. Now, in order to understand what they know, we need to understand a little bit about slavery in the ancient world. Now, we talked about this back in our study of Genesis when we were talking about the story of Joseph. And you remember in the story of Joseph, as as the famine went on in Egypt and the situation got worse and worse and the people kept coming and selling their stuff to Pharaoh so they could get enough grain to eat and eventually they ran out of things to sell to Pharaoh. What did they do? They offered themselves to Pharaoh as slaves, okay? And that brought up the whole question of slavery in the ancient world, and we talked about it. And in the ancient world, there were two kinds of slavery. There was involuntary servitude and voluntary servitude. Now, voluntary servitude is not like the servitude that you have to your employer, which is tomorrow, if you want it, you can just walk off the job. I don't recommend it. But you could, probably. Well, maybe I would recommend it. You'll have to tell me what your situation is. But, but I wouldn't typically recommend you just walk off the job. Well, that's not an option to a slave. Okay. But as we pointed out when we studied Genesis, there were a lot of people in the ancient world that were so poor and lived so hand-to-mouth 
that they were they and their families were in jeopardy of perishing. And so, to avoid that situation, an individual would go and he would offer to be someone's slave. Okay? Voluntary servitude. He would offer to be somebody's slave. Now, there were people who were forced into slavery, many, okay? But there were also these ones who were voluntarily offered themselves. But once you voluntarily offered yourself as a slave, you became a slave, right? And we even have the picture in the Old Testament of somebody who voluntarily offers himself a slave. What would they do with that person? They pierce the ear, wouldn't they? Okay. And and we use, and and the scripture uses that. <coughs> Excuse me. The scripture uses that uh, in reference to Christ, how Christ in relationship to the Father had his ear pierced. He was the Father's slave. Okay? Well, so so once their ear was pierced and they were permanently marked, right? They're permanently marked as a slave. Now, you still have that going on during the Roman era, but by the time you're into the Roman era, you have four, far more involuntary slaves because you have all these prisoners that the Romans have captured all over the Mediterranean world. <clears throat> and particularly, we're talking here about the church in Rome and the city in Rome. And, and I forget exactly what the statistic is now, but we talked about it in our introductory lesson on Romans. Something like 50, 60% of the people who lived in the city of Rome were slaves. So when Paul's talking about this whole idea of slavery and using this imagery of slavery, this is something people are really familiar with. Now, many of them were involuntary slaves. But still, even during the Roman era, you obviously had some voluntary slaves. And that's what Paul is alluding to here in verse 16 when he says, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now, if in fact 50 or 60 percent of the population of the city of Rome at the time Paul is writing this letter are slaves, there's a pretty good chance that about 50 or 60 percent of the church or more are slaves. Right? So when he says this to them, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves? There's probably some people there in the church that went, yeah, that's just exactly the situation I'm in. I was in a predicament. I was starving. My family was starving. I, I wasn't going to make it. We were going to die. And I needed, I needed somebody to take care of me. And so I offered myself to this guy. And, I made, and yeah, I'm a slave. I agreed to do it. And I'm his slave. And I'm his slave for good. So they can relate to this thing, this illustration that Paul is using. But Paul jumps right from the illustration into the reality of the situation. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So, so the point Paul's making is that you and I, as believers, writing to believers here, and I'm going to get this far today, 
But you're going to see in the next verses, he makes it very clear. He's talking to people who are saved. Okay, it's very clear. You can't get away from it. So, Paul is talking to believers and it's very clear that believers can put themselves in a position of slavery to sin. No doubt about it. Okay? Now, now I, I believe in what's called lordship salvation. Okay, I believe in that. I believe when a Christian, when someone's saved, I believe their life really changes. Okay? And we'll talk about this next week. I really do believe the life changes and if the life hasn't changed, the person hasn't been saved. But it's very clear that Paul says it's possible for a believer to put himself in slavery to sin. Now, just one last point before we quit, and I, I didn't expect we'd make it given the shortness of time today, <clears throat> so we won't make it all the way through verse 19, but that's fine. We'll get enough time next week. <coughs> but we need to understand what Paul's saying. What are the alternatives he gives us there in verse 16? <clears throat> Excuse me? What are the alternatives? What are the two alternatives? Okay, and what is your, what is your relationship to sin? Pardon? You're a slave? Okay. So you have an alternative of slave to sin. And the other alternative is slave to obedience. Okay. Now, we got to remember we're living in the 21st century and we just don't think the way they thought back then. <laughs> okay? So we're living in the 21st century and one of the biggest ideas for us people that live in the 21st century is this idea. <coughs> Freedom, right? Talk about it all the time. I'm always talking about freedom, being free. And it's a big thing. It's a big thing in Scripture. He set us free. We're going to talk about it in this verse. Set us free from sin. Freedom's a big deal. <coughs> the problem is that in the 21st century, freedom has come to mean something different than it means in Scripture. Because to us today, freedom means personal autonomy. Which means what? I can do whatever I want. And the mistake we often make as Christians is we think, well, He died to set me free. So God died to give me personal autonomy. So when we read Romans 6 and he talks about being a slave here or being a slave over there, we just kind of, in our guts, we react against that, don't we? Because we don't like the idea of being slaves. And so what we like to think, although we might not ever articulate it that way, what we like to think is what Christ really came to give me was personal autonomy. Right? That's what he came to do. He came to give me personal autonomy autonomy. I get to do whatever I want to do. I'm free from sin. I don't have to sin anymore so I can just live any way I want. As long as I don't sin, I'm okay, right? 
Because if I start sinning, I'm a slave of sin. But now, Christ has given me this personal autonomy. What's the problem with that? And don't say it's not biblical. Pardon? Slave to one or the other. Okay. God gives you freedom from being a slave to sin to be a slave. Yeah, but what if I can get here? What if I can do this personal autonomy? Then I'm really free, right? Personal autonomy, then what that does is you're relying on your senses. It means you're going to live according to the flesh. Okay, okay, that's true. That's true. Uh, But it's not inevitable. But there is something inevitable about this that puts it in this category. And what is it? Pardon? What were you going to say, Gary? Okay, okay. Okay, well, most importantly, personal autonomy by definition means what? I'm independent of whom? God. As soon as I'm independent from God, I'm what? I'm in sin. So there is no such thing as personal autonomy. <laughs> okay. Okay, really, right. Okay. So there is no such thing as personal autonomy. As soon as I start living this personal autonomy thing, professing I'm a believer, maybe I am a believer. As soon as I start living this personal autonomy thing, I've suddenly classified myself over here, and once again, I'm living as a slave to sin. Because anytime I'm living independently, truly independently, I'm living independently of God, which by definition is sin. That's why we only have two choices, folks. We can be a slave of sin or a slave of obedience. Okay? That's as far as we can go today, and we'll pick it up with verse 17 next week. Thanks.